wonderful to be here this morning. What a great time of worship. Praise the Lord for that. It's good to gather our thoughts around all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's the purpose of what we do when it comes to observing our communion, which we do here once a month, I believe. Our communion service is open to all believers in Christ. Uh, please, if you have not already picked up uh, the elements that are on the back table, you can make your way back there and, and grab those. Please uh, wait, and we will partake of them together. We do ask the parents, uh, if you would, to just oversee, supervise your children during this time of worship. And with that said, I want to read a couple of verses here that you've heard read many times. But I think we need to come back to them every now and then. We, we mention them almost every time in the ordinance as we celebrate. But let's read it, or listen, if you will, carefully. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There are some explanation that needs to be made here, perhaps. I think we're all in agreement here, but it's good to review the why. The elements of the Lord's Supper are symbolic. They tell us something about the one that we need to remember. Something important about why we do this on a regular basis. Verse 24 says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. We didn't mean literally his body, obviously. This, this symbolizes my body. This represents my body. But that then begs the question, what does he mean when he says this is my body? Well, his body was rather unique. He had a human body by virtue of his mother. But... He was also fully God as well as fully man by means of the Holy Spirit without a human father. And so when he says, this is my body, the bread, it represents who he was. Beginning with his incarnation, encompassing the whole of his life, leading up to his crucifixion and ultimately even then his resurrection, his ascension. His body, his resurrected body will be present. It will be his state throughout eternity. We have a body. We can understand that. But when he says here, this is my body, there's not something mystical here involved in partaking of the communion. It is simply recognition 
of who he is. He was the God-man. He is the God-man. By virtue of being man, he can be our substitute on the cross. He can take our place, endure our punishment. But by virtue of his deity, he, he arose from the grave. He defeated death. And he gives us all that he has planned for us. And he will come back for us. And so we remember him. That's who he is, his body. But then the next verse says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what about the symbolism of the cup? The blood, of course, is what it means. But what does he mean here when he says the blood of the new covenant? He's referencing his death. See, his body, who he was, his death, what he did. And that, of course, is significant. It's all, it's everything as far as our eternal destiny is concerned. So when we observe the Lord's Supper, we are to rightfully remember who he is and what he did. That's why it says, do this in remembrance of me. Celebrating the communion on Memorial Day weekend makes it easier for us to understand what that means. We remember those who sacrificed much for our freedom here in the United States. We remember those in our family and those of our friends and those of our fellow believers who helped shape our lives. And, and we appreciate and remember all that they did and we're thankful for them. But the ultimate remembrance for us as believers, this is why we observe the Lord's Supper Many times, baptism is a one-time ordinance, but the Lord's Supper is a reoccurring commemorance or remembrance that we come to on a regular basis, remembering who he is, who we serve, what he did, and what that means for us. And so let's partake of the Lord's Supper together. If you have uh, your elements there, you can remove the top layer and expose the wafer. And then we'll partake of that together as we again review this verse. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. And now, the cup, if you'll remove the other layer. The scripture says, in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's bow our heads together for a moment or two, just silent reflection. That we might really, truly remember what we have just done and remember who he is and 
all that he means and all that he did for our sake, his grace. May we recommit ourselves to him, serving him, living for him, worshiping him, and turning away from our own ways and our own desires and our own sins. Lord, we are in no way worthy of what you have done for us. We're only instructed in the scripture to partake the Lord's Supper in a worthy way, to remember, Lord, to actually reflect on who you are and all that you've done for us. But our remembrance, our looking back, is also accompanied by the hope that we have looking forward. We praise you for that, Father, for all that you've promised, all that you've done for us. We render praise unto you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we invite the young folks to uh, move on to children's worship, uh, ages 5 to 11. If you are visiting, you have young youngsters, you're welcome to accompany them back to the area if you'll follow these folks and meet the teachers and the folks there or even uh, stay with them for a few moments and give them a little comfort if you want. Lord, they're welcome to stay with, with us here. About three years or so ago, the Journal of Social Psychology reported on a study done in France by a group of volunteers associated with the University of Southern Brittany. They chose two retail stores. One was a clothing boutique, the other a bakery. They divided the volunteers into two groups. One group <clears throat> split up between the two stores and went there and they began to, you know, just act like normal customers. But at some point, you know, they would reach in their pockets, act like they were trying to find something or pull out their purse, and they would inadvertently drop something like a glove or uh, a scarf, whatever it was, and then walk off from it as if they had not noticed that they had left it. The other group was stationed to observe, observe both what happened in the bakery and what happened in the clothing boutique. Their research discovered that around 50% of those individuals that were in the clothing boutique that observed this instance of someone dropping something and walking off from it, about 50% of them went, picked it up, and returned it to the individual. The bakery, however, had a different result. In the bakery, 25% more people somewhere around 77% that were in the bakery, picked up the item and returned it to the individual, sometimes literally chasing them down to return it to them. And the only difference between the boutique and the bakery was in the bakery, there was this wonderful smell of bread baking. That was the, that was the focus of the study, to see if what they 
could smell would affect what they did. Now, that might be why realtors tell you to bake bread when you're having folks come in to see a house you're selling. I don't know. I'm just, that thought goes through my mind. Uh, never have thought much about the smell of bread, but it is wonderful. I, I, I prefer just go ahead and eat it. But, uh, and I don't know what this tells us specifically other than this. We can be influenced by external circumstances, even in regard to doing something we should do that we might otherwise overlook. And if we can be so influenced by external circumstances, maybe even something as simple as an aroma, then we surely, most surely, should be continually influenced by the internal presence of God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's more, per, that, 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 that's closer, that's got to be more powerful. And so the question is, does the Spirit of God who lives within us, and if you're born again, he does, the Scripture teaches us that, that being the case, the question is, does he influence our behavior, our choices? Well, none of us would uh, dispute the fact that he should. The question is, do we allow him to do what he wants to do and to be that influence in our lives? It's no wonder that Scripture in many, many places tells us that we need to bring our lives into alignment with the will of God, the leading of the Spirit. And yet, there's a lot of hazy, emotional concepts in regard to what that looks like, practically speaking. It, it's interesting, if you think about it, the things that you hear that people associate with being a spiritual person. I remember as a, a youngster back in the 1960s going to a, a camp meeting in a tent, a big, and the, the, it seemed like the whole county was there. And along toward the end of the service, I heard this horrendous shout, almost a scream. And being a youngster, I'm thinking, you know, has a copperhead crawled into the tent or what, what, what's going on? And I inquired. My mother or whoever was there, they said, oh, the lady was just, just expressing her joy. It was a holy shout. And I never heard anything like that. And I'm not trying to criticize her. We can respond many different ways emotionally to what we feel, but we have to be careful that we don't begin to associate spirituality to some particular response. Because really being a spiritual person goes much deeper than how we worship, how we feel, what we say. 
So what I want to do this morning is to point you to the book of Ephesians chapter 5 at verse 17 to begin with. And here I want you to get this concept. And we want to keep it, try to keep it before us all the way through the message. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to control our lives. But that's really hard to make practical or put in terms that we can get a hold of. So how do how we do this? How is it we can allow the Holy Spirit to control our life? There's two principles that we're going to see here in these verses. They're not readily apparent as you read them, but I think as we dissect these verses, they'll come to us. There are two principles that we need to apply if we're going to really, truly be spirit-controlled. First off, I want to just give you a little context that I didn't get on the screen. But beginning at verse 15, Ephesians chapter 5 at verse 15. Here Paul says this, he says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Now, he says that the ground level, bottom line obligation here is for us to walk, live, conduct ourselves in wisdom, making the most of our time. And then in verse 17, he says, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, what is the will of the Lord in particular? That's what we're going to deal with, and that brings us to the first principle. We have a responsibility, and we find that in verse 18. In verse 18, we are told that we need to be filled with the Spirit. That's the, that's the uh, bottom line. Let me read it to you. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with with the Spirit. Now, again, I've heard all kinds of ideas and thoughts as to what it means to be filled with the Spirit. But let's just notice some basics and then we'll build up to a definition. The goal here of living in the will of God, living a wise life, conducting ourselves in every way and manner as we should, the goal includes. Spirit control, and there's a comparison, there's a contrast that he gives us first that kind of helps us grasp the concept. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation. Well, we all know that wine in uh, whatever quantity it would require can bring about intoxication. And when somebody is intoxicated, they become uninhibited, we call it. 
They, they put off what might be a normal level of self-control, and they are basically yielded over to the control of the substance. So the goal of spirit control is wisdom, and it does not look like somebody who gives up control of themselves because you can't give up control of yourself and apply God's wisdom to your life. The contrast here, which drunkenness, which he says is dissipation, and that's an interesting word. The word dissipation means something that's wasted. So to give up your own control, give it over to a substance or a, whatever it be, wine or any other substance you might abuse, is to waste your life. You're giving up control of what you do and how you think and how you act. That's the contrast. The responsibility that he then contrasts it with is the matter of being filled with the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, the English preposition with here literally means by the Spirit. Yield up control of your life to the Spirit. Okay, we've got that. Let's talk about that responsibility. First off, it is a responsibility. It's, it's specifically in the imperative mode in the original language. That means it's an unquestioned command. It's not saying, you know, we all ought to be spiritual people, and every now and then, you know, maybe it'll happen to us. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying we need to be spiritual, and we have control over whether we're spiritual or not. We have an obligation, a responsibility in this matter. So it's a personal responsibility. It's also a perpetual responsibility. Why? It's a present tense imperative verb. And the present tense in the Greek language is not just something that happens at the moment, but it's something that's occurring at the moment, but something that continues to the next moment, the next moment, the next moment. It's an ongoing, perpetual, personal responsibility. And we have to fulfill that responsibility. Years ago, my first year in seminary, we were attending a little church, and the pastor announced that uh, we wanted all the men to come. It was a pretty small church. We wanted all the men to come, and we were going to have an all-night prayer meeting. I said, okay. If everybody's going to pray all night, I'm, I'm, I'm there. So <clears throat> then he said, now, what we're going to pray for is that we're going to get together, and we're going to pray that we will all be filled with the Holy Spirit. I didn't know any better. So I went, and I prayed with the rest of them. And as far as I can tell, nobody got filled with the Spirit. Or at least it wasn't noticeable in any way that I could ascertain. So I went away from that thinking, what is this? I mean, it was new to me. What am I missing here? I had to go back to Scripture and realize Paul is not telling us to ask God to fill us with the Spirit He's telling us to be filled with the Spirit. We have some say in this. So again, what are we talking about? It's not some mystical experience or some notable reaction that God just superimposes on us, but it's a responsibility that we have to fulfill. One that is accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit, no doubt. But how do we connect the dots? Okay, I want you to compare two verses. The first one we're looking at right here. To so look at it again, Ephesians 
chapter 5, verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, then switch over to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. And read this verse. It's going to sound very similar. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and with thanksgiving in your heart. All, the, re, all the, the results of letting the word of Christ draw, dwell in you richly are the same results you find in Ephesians 5.18 of being filled with the Spirit. So, being filled with the Spirit is equivalent to letting the Word of God dwell in your heart and soul richly. Let's go back to the baking bread. Why did the people in the bakery perform a kind act, even if it was because they were somehow influenced by the aroma? Why did they do it? Because somewhere, at some point in their life, someone had taught them They should be kind to other people. Otherwise, they can smell all the bread they want. It might have made them hungry, but it wouldn't have made them kind. If the aroma indeed was an influence, it was an influence that caused them to go back to what they thought was right and to be kind to someone else. So there was content to the response, teaching, understanding at the bottom of it. The same is true with being spirit-filled. To be spirit-filled means that your life is saturated with the Word of God, and the Spirit of God, by the way, who inspired the Word of God, we are told illuminates our minds in John chapter 16 to help us understand the Word of God, but the Holy Spirit doesn't give us new revelation. He takes from the Word of God that we have poured into our heart and soul, and He motivates us, empowers us, and prompts us to act in accordance with the Word. That's very practical. Now, I I hear this a lot of times, especially from young people that I teach. They'll say, uh, we'll be talking about, well, what does the Lord want us to do? What's the Lord's will for life? And they'll say, well, we need to... Pray, read our Bibles, and go to church. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying, reading your Bibles, and going to church. In fact, those are things we all should do. But it's not nearly deep enough to change us if it's just a legalistic activity that we go about doing. We have got to read the Bible, true, but we've got to absorb the Bible. We've got to meditate on the Bible. We've got to let the Bible guide us in every decision, every thought, everything we do. We've got to let it dwell in us richly. And then when we go to church, we partake of those who teach and preach the Word of God. And we enhance that whole experience. We connect the dots. The Word of God is the basis and the foundation of spirit filling. We can sum all this up this way. To be spirit filled 
means first of all and foremost that we have to have an absence of self-will. Because the enemy of being spiritual is our own nature. Oh, there's other enemies too. But the worst enemy probably is our own nature. We have to get rid of our own self-will and submit ourselves to the will of God, the wisdom of God, the word of God. And that's a choice we make. That's our responsibility. We can't choose to be perfectly spirit-filled, but we can choose to enter into the battle of letting the Word of God be our lighthouse and be our guiding light and let it be our rule of life in all things. And when we do that, then we are empowered by the Spirit of God. As Luke wrote, when the Spirit comes, he will become a present, powerful reality in your life. In fact, he says in Acts 1.8, when you receive the Spirit, he will bring you power. That's dunamis in the Greek. It's all God power, infinite power. We have the ability to act on what we choose to decide to do or act upon. So there has to be an absence of self-will. J. Wilbur Chapman was a preacher that lived back in the late 1800s. And uh, he was a Presbyterian evangelist. He was in association with D.L. Moody and others at that time. He traveled to England in the late 1800s, and he met with William Booth, who st- had started the uh, Salvation Army, which was a powerful evangelistic uh, organization in its early days. And Chapman asked Booth, what was it that was the secret of his success? Now, Booth's ministry began with the poor people in England. This is what Booth said. He said, I will tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, men with greater opportunities, but from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with the poor of London, I made up my mind God would have all of William Booth there was. Well, that was his secret. Chapman went on in his writing of this experience to say that he had learned this lesson. He said, the greatest of man's power is the measure of his surrender, the absence of self-will. So that's what spirit filling means. By the way, the word filled was a word they used to refer to the sails on the boats in those days being filled with wind. Interesting because the spirit... Uh, that word in the Greek means wind. It's a descriptive term used for the Spirit of God. So he provides the power for us to move forward, doing what we should do, going where he wants us to go, and so forth. And we have to choose on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis, to allow him to do that as we focus on our responsibility.
But there's a second principle now that we need to come to. Remember, what we're talking about here is allowing ourselves to be spirit-controlled. Allow the Spirit of God to control your life. Now, how do we do that? Number one, we have to focus on our responsibility. We've covered that. Number two, the second principle, we have to evaluate our spirituality. Because there are certain specifics in the Word of God that tell us what a Spirit-filled life will be like. And so we have to constantly evaluate that in order to ascertain whether or not we are literally yielded to the Spirit's will or maybe just fooling ourselves and following our own. And so in the Scripture here, we're given a description of the Spirit-filled life. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. That's the first one. Praise. Personal praise expressed to God. Worship. He says, speaking to yourselves, or literally to one another, in psalms. Well, we all know what psalms are. That's what David wrote. When he, when he says psalms here, he's speaking of inspired content to our musical or poetical expression right out of the Scripture. We've kind of gotten somewhat away from that in our modern times. It was very prevalent early on in the church. But he says psalms and hymns. Now, the word hymn was a word that was used of any expression of praise or thanks to, to God of any kind. And even in the, in the pagan world, they use this term in, in their concepts of uh, their multiple gods. So, specific inspired praise or any praise in general that you want to give to God that's personal, doesn't have to be inspired. And then he says, spiritual songs. The Greek word is the word ode in English, spiritual odes. It, this third category basically broadens it out further. It says any sort of expression of praise to God, as long as it's spirit-controlled expression, it doesn't deviate from the Word of God, the truth of God, and the, the reality of who God is, that's all included. And then he goes on to say this, singing and making melody with your heart or from your heart. Now, we all know what singing is. We had good singing this morning from most of us. A few people like myself, I don't know if it was good, but it was singing. Singing is vocal praise, but then it says making melody. And, and it's sometimes confusing because in some translations it says making melody in your heart. And we think, well, I can't sing very well, but I can make melody in my heart. Well, that may be true. It probably is true, but 
he's talking about making melody and singing both from your heart to God, sincere worship. And the, <clears throat> the idea here of making melody <clears throat> means playing an instrument. It literally comes from a word which means to pluck strings. So we've got singing and we've got playing. And we've got the, the widest possible expression of worship. Style, hymn, praise, chorus, whatever you want to call it. There's not some limited means of expressing praise to God. It's very broad. We all need to keep that in mind, by the way. But whether you're singing or playing... It needs to be from your heart expressed to God. He's the one we're praising and worshiping. Now, that should be present in your life if you are in tune with the word, if you're spirit-filled. And then there's continual thanksgiving in verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Again, it's a present tense participle here. It's giving a description. If you, are, if you have chosen to be led by the Word, filled with the Spirit, empowered by Him in conjunction with the Word, then you're going to be worshiping, praising Him, personal praise, but you're also going to be a person who is thankful, who's always expressing thanks to God on a regular basis, present tense. Then we move on to verse 21. And be subject, he says, one to another in the fear of Christ. This is mutual submission. So we have personal, purposeful praise. We have continual thanksgiving. And we have mutual submission. Now, <clears throat> some people want to connect this only with what they read next in Ephesians, which is husbands and wives. But this is first. The further explanation drills down deeper and deals with specifics of leadership and submission. But I think here he is simply saying that every other believer has to be submitted to the good or the needs of every other believer. It's very similar to what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where he says, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Again, it goes back to the absence of self-will and self-want. All of this is a gauge on whether or not you're really spirit-filled. But we could add something else. We could add the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22, 23. He doesn't talk about it here in Ephesians, but in the book of Galatians, he says what? He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we need to note there, it doesn't say the fruits, plural, of the Spirit, but it names nine things. It says the fruit, singular, which has nine aspects. Now think about this. Let's say some of you that have youngsters around the house, that for some reason you wake up in the middle of the night, they get a drink of water or whatever, 
and you get out of bed, and you start through the darkened room, the darkened house, and you trip over some toy that's been left there, not been put away, and you fall down, and you're really banged up, and you just get up from that and say, praise God, this is the most wonderful experience. No, wait a minute, we don't do that, do we? In fact, we don't feel very loving toward the one who left the toy or whatever in, in the floor. Love is just not coursing through our mind. Neither is joy. And we're not very peaceful at that moment. And we're certainly not long-suffering. And we're not gentle. And we're not good. They all go together. And they're either all there or they're all gone. This is the, this is the absolute, I think, best verse or two in all of Scripture to use to evaluate your life, especially along with what we find in Ephesians 5. So let's draw this to a conclusion. We should allow the Holy Spirit to control our lives. Remember, when he says, be filled with the Spirit, it's a present tense. A present tense command. An unceasing responsibility. That means... Being spirit-filled is not a one-time, cover-all, make-me-spiritual experience. It is an everyday, every-moment struggle. It is an absolute difficult responsibility to fulfill. And if you don't believe that's the case, just take that fruit of the Spirit and you just every time you have an issue going on in your life, go over that and say, whoops, I didn't see any of that. You'll realize it's a battle, a momentary battle. So here's what we need to understand. We need to focus on our responsibility. We need to evaluate our spirituality and then repeat that really often. Galatians 5.16 says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. This is again over in Galatians, before we come to the fruit, leading up to that, he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Well, if you don't walk with the Spirit, you're not filled with the Spirit. If you don't walk by the Spirit, you're not letting the Spirit or the Word of God dwell in you richly. And if you don't do any of that, then you're going to be carried on day by day, moment by moment, decision by decision, by your own fleshly desires. So we got to get serious about understanding our responsibility. But what we do, unfortunately, is we excuse ourselves all too often. And not only do we excuse ourselves very often, that when we're called on it, or when the Spirit of God, if nobody else calls us on it, then we begin to say, well, <clears throat> no, yeah, nobody's that spiritual, right? Uh, you know, it's just, my, it's just my weak area, Lord. It's just the way I am. When you catch yourself saying that, you're not being spirit-filled. You're not yielding your, your will to the will of God. You're not living in wisdom. You're not letting the Word of God dwell in you richly. You're not accessing the power of God to live a different life, to bear the fruit of the Spirit. 
That's our problem. How many of you right now can think of someone that has just been an absolute inspiration in your life that you can think of and say, gee whiz, that person has been a great example to me. That person has truly been a spiritual person. How many of them, how many, how many can you name? That's because we're all in a battle and we lose a lot of battles, right? It's hard to find that person. We're all going to fall short. So nobody's a perfect example. The spiritual life is there for us. We have the power to live in accord with the Spirit. We have the Word to direct us. We have clearly explained to us. But boy, the day-to-day grind of doing it, well, that's what it is. You know what spiritual growth is? It's beginning to win some of those battles. You're never going to win them all. But spiritual growth is you begin to win a few battles and maybe a few more battles. And you're not so much self-motivated so much as you once were. That's spiritual growth. That's the battle we face every day. 